The following audio is from the King's Chapel in Clifton, Virginia. For more information about our church or to listen to more sermons from this series, you can visit us online at thekingschapel.org. A few years ago, I had the privilege of being part of a small group Bible study, and if you are not part of a small group in our church, you need to know that's, that's what our church is all about. We are a small groups church, and in this Bible study that I was a part of, it was a group of guys who were dedicated to opening up God's word and, and letting it convict us and change us, and we, over the course of years, went through massive sections of scripture, but one of the best things about this particular Bible study was that in that group, there were several people there who were not Christians, who would come week after week uh, with a a curiosity. Maybe they enjoyed the company, but they were willing to engage with us in the study of of God's word. And let me tell you, if you want to grow in your faith as a believer, there's really no better Bible study than, than one like this. Because when you're in an environment where people are not familiar with all the same things we are, when you've, through years of repetition and church attendance and study, begun to take certain concepts or, or values or beliefs or truths for granted, someone will come into this kind of study and they will ask these amazing questions as the Holy Spirit is drawing them towards himself through his word. They'll ask questions that we maybe don't think to ask, the deepest and most honest questions. Years ago, one such individual in this Bible study uh, who's since come to know the Lord and, and been baptized here in this church and entirely given his life to Jesus, but he was asking some of these deep questions, specifically about the suffering of Jesus the suffering of Jesus that we've begun to look at in this final week of Jesus's ministry in Mark chapter 14, as he is preparing to go to a cross and suffer immensely. And he wondered if Christ is truly who he says he is, if he's who we believe him to be, the son of God, if he's divine, then what's so impressive about his suffering and death? Let me explain what was behind that question. It's it's, after all in his superhumanity, He could suffer so much better than the rest of us, right? He could endure so much longer than the rest of us. He could maintain his dignity so much better than us and die with this steadfast expectation of what was coming next, which we know what was coming next is resurrection. So if this is what Jesus was looking forward to, if he was in his superhumanity, how would this have been so difficult for him? And and it was hard for this individual to, to reconcile that in his mind. Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever wondered, maybe we think to ourselves, I could never suffer like that. I could not endure that. I could not walk willingly and courageously toward that because I see in myself weakness and helplessness and this shaky hope, even in the promises of God. But surely Jesus would not have had that same weakness. Actually, this this question is, is one of the sources of, for hundreds of years in the early church, all kinds of different heresies that came along, uh, heresies that would seek to diminish either the divinity of our Lord or the humanity of our Lord. And there's great names for many of these. You can think of Nestorianism, uh, Apollinarianism, Adoptionism, Arianism. Arianism basically just denied the divinity of Christ altogether. Nestorianism was basically like Jesus is Superman. He's Clark Kent and then he goes into a phone booth and spins around and, and he's God again. And, and, and then there's uh, adoptionism, which is you know, Jesus was just a really, really exceptional person who lived a sinless life long enough that the father looked down on him and said, you're the one that I choose to carry out this plan of salvation. There's a, a Apollinarianism, which Jesus was divine in his mind, but human in his body. And, and all of these different views were our, our heresies. 
And so this is something exciting you can do when you are in your Bible study and uh, someone says one of these things or something that aligns with them, you can call them a heretic. It's really fun, okay? You can <laughs> do that whenever you want. Actually, no, we, did, we didn't do that to uh, our, our friend there because he was asking really good questions. How do we understand this? This is one of the great mysteries of our faith as we, as we believe the reality of what the scriptures say and what the scriptures will make clear to us, I believe this morning, is just this, that in Jesus Christ's incarnation, that is him coming and putting on flesh and, and dwelling among us, that he is fully God and yet at the same time completely, fully weak in his humanity, just like us just like any of us. See, as his crucifixion approaches, as he's walking into this darkness that is before him, he is overwhelmed. Jesus is, is desperate. He is full of sorrow, so much so that he felt like he might die just from the weight of the sorrow. You see, Jesus is no demigod. He's no, no semi-divine, no half-human, half-hero. He is fully man, fully man. And perhaps you begin to be concerned, Mark, are you going to diminish the, the holiness and the divinity of God by what you say next? Are you going to devoid Christ of his power and his foreknowledge and his conviction? Oh no, we will see all of that on display in, in grandeur in the coming weeks as we see the resurrection. But the wonder of this passage this morning is that God became radically vulnerable, radically weak, ultimately weak to be a fitting substitute for us fallen humanity. He took on our humanity. And this morning, as we turn to Mark chapter 14, and, and you can also put maybe a, a, a thumb in Luke chapter 22, which is the parallel passage. I'm just going to warn you, if I say a detail that you don't see on the page in Mark, it's, it's because it's in Luke's account of this. But we'll see Jesus after his last supper with his disciples. And he's going to display some traits that, that we might not expect from the Son of God. We're going to see him distressed. We're going to see him disappointed. And we're going to see him determined in the end, determined. So to set this in context, remember with me, Jesus has just been sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. He's given them this sacrament that we celebrated last week, this broken bread and, and poured wine to symbolize his broken body and shed blood for us. And then as the, the evening is wearing on, they sing one final hymn. And then they gather up their belongings. They step out into the fallen darkness knowing that Judas has already gone out from their company to betray the Lord. And they begin to walk briskly through the cold night air, eastbound towards Gethsemane, towards a garden in the Mount of Olives, one of Jesus's favorite places to pray. But think about this. His betrayer has just gone out and his betrayer knows that this is where Jesus loves to go and pray. Jesus is not shrinking back from this task though he is overwhelmed, as we'll see in a moment, but he goes to the very place that he knows he can be caught. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. He simply goes to what he needs to do in that moment, which is to pray, to be with his loving father. So as they walk, John's gospel records that Jesus, he's gonna teach his disciples. They're going to pass by vines and he's, he's going to say, after this, you better abide in me. You as branches better stay connected to me in the vine. And, and, and don't worry, I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit to empower you through this. And he's teaching them and he prays with them. But as they arrive in the garden, as they get nearer and nearer to the hour of his betrayal, Jesus begins to be completely overwhelmed. I want to read this to you in Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read a lot of verses. So just hang in there with me, follow with me through this passage. And we're not going to talk in depth about very many of them. We'll actually just look at the middle section this morning. And we'll come back to some of this 
Next week, for example, next week, when some of us are at family camp, our youth pastor, Pastor uh, Brendan, is going to be preaching about the dynamic between Jesus and Peter in these last hours. And there's a lot, a lot to learn there. So we'll, we'll set some of that aside for next time. But it says this, starting in verse 26, it says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, hear the seriousness in his voice, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And then they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John. This is something that Jesus often did. He has his 12, but then he has these three that he takes with him to the the Mount of Transfiguration or into the upper room to heal the daughter of, of Jairus. These are three that get this privileged access to the son of God because these are his dear friends. And here he begins to break down in front of them. It says, he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. They can see this on their Lord's face. How concerning must this have been? And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is not going to be the focus of our study this morning, but these verses right here have been just in my mind all week in preparation for this. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. How many of us feel that in our daily walk with the Lord? We know what what we really want to do is we live to honor God and yet it is difficult, it is a struggle. And here they're found sleeping. In Jesus' hour of desperation, when he's, he's about to face this great trial, his closest friends, he just wants them to be with him and to pray for him, and, and they fall asleep. There's a picture of us in there as well, isn't there? How we fall asleep spiritually. It's difficult sometimes to, to stay awake. We get so easily distracted. And here in the disciples, I, I can't really blame them. Actually, in, in Luke's gospel, it says that they slept for sorrow. They slept for sorrow. They they were so overwhelmed, so sorrowful about what Jesus has explained to them in the Last Supper, about what awaits him. They're all going to deny him. And I don't know about you, but I do this. When I'm overwhelmed by life, when I'm full of sorrow, I just wanna curl up in a bed and disappear, right? That's what these disciples are doing. And yet this is not what our Lord does. He goes away, it says in verse 39. And again, he went away and he prayed, saying the same words saying the same words, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And again, he came and he found them sleeping for their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. 
the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus stands and with courage, he faces his betrayal. I'm going to read this, this betrayal. Tyler talked about it a, a bit a couple weeks ago when we looked at Judas. It says, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man. This is how familiar they are. This is how they greet one another. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And then a couple of unusual verses, it says in verse 51, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. What's that all about? That, that is, uh, in all likelihood, it's a, such a strange story and kind of an embarrassing story that, that most scholars agree that this is the gospel writer, Mark. That he as a young man was following all this that the disciples would often gather in his home in Jerusalem and he's following from a distance and, and this is his story. He was there as an eyewitness. But this is a, I know I've given you a lot of verses, but what I want to just walk you through this week, first and foremost, is this. I want you to see in this the completeness of Christ's humanity. Verse 32, again, it says, and they went to this place, Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And so just as he's done in the past on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he's with all the disciples, he pulls aside three of his closest followers and they walk ahead of the group farther up the hill and they see something on Jesus's face that they have never seen before. The Lord is utterly overwhelmed. It says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This is the very same Jesus who has driven out countless demons. The same Jesus who has rebuked a storm and it has become still. The same Jesus who has been transfigured into glorious splendor before the eyes of his disciples. He is now shaking before them. All the forces of darkness are gathering. All the servants of the enemy are anticipating their triumph over the son of God. Jesus, in his heart and mind, he is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and in all his stark humanity, he is suffering under the weight of of what lies before him. And he said to them, verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. We know from John's account that this was a cold evening. We know that as Jesus is arrested and taken into the court of the high priest, that, that the servants of the high priest gather around a fire trying to stay warm. Peter, who's trying not to reveal his identity, not, not wanting to be arrested himself. It's so cold out that he himself wants to draw near to that fire of coals to stay warm. This is a, a cold evening. The, the shadows of night have fallen. The temperature in Jerusalem has dropped to an uncomfortably cool level. And yet Luke's gospel tells us that as Jesus withdraws to pray, he is so overwhelmed that he is sweating profusely. Sweating like great drops of blood. This is a medical condition, actually, hematohydrosis, this sweating of blood. It's a very rare medical condition in which the capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands, they rupture, causing blood to exude from the body. And under, this only happens under the most extreme conditions of physical and emotional stress. 
You can look this up in our National Institutes of Health. If you look up the government websites, who will they talk about? They'll talk about Jesus on those web pages because this condition is, is so rare and yet it's been observed historically uh, several more times, especially by those who are awaiting execution for their crimes. Jesus is here in the garden and he's pouring out blood, sweat, and tears. He is sorrowful unto death. Jesus is devastated. Jesus knows what awaits him and he is feeling every ounce of it. I wonder this morning, how many of us, how many of you, have felt even a fraction of this. And as Christians, sometimes we're ashamed to be overwhelmed. We're ashamed to be overcome with sorrow. We're, we're convinced that if we knew our Bibles well enough, if we really believe these verses that were quoted to us, we as good Christians should be more steadfast in our strength and our hope than this. Some of you right now are in the midst of sorrow, internal turmoil, distress, and we come together on Sunday mornings and we, we move about smiling and shaking hands. And some of you today are really struggling. And maybe only God knows that. Maybe you've only told him, but as you feel the world is crashing in on you, as you feel there's no escape from the trials that await you, you can be sure of this. You are in good company. Our Christ, our Lord, he is familiar with our anguish. And what a comfort that is. Do you know you have a God who is not far off? He's not at a distance. He's not removed. He is not cold. He's not distant. He's not sleeping through our suffering. No. Hebrews chapter four says this. It says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but this is our Lord. It says, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You need to know this. Jesus holds not one ounce of cynicism towards your sorrow, not one ounce of doubt toward your despair. He knows what you're going through. He has suffered himself. And he draws near to the suffering as one who understands in all his humanity, he has experienced this and he draws near to us. He is with you even now. Like a loving older brother with his arm around you, he knows what you are going through. It says, and going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This is not our focus necessarily this morning, but we can't miss this opportunity to see this is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does when he is distressed, when he is full of sorrow. We see in him this pattern of prayer. This is his go-to. First, we see that he has a place of prayer. He has a favorite place to go to, to pray. And this in Judea, if he's in Judea, it is this garden. He goes here to be with his father, a hillside garden on the Mount of Olives. And as he's done in the past, he, he goes with his friends, but then he withdraws. It says a stone's throw away from his disciples. A stone's throw isn't much. It's enough distance where they can still see him. And they see him fall down. Actually, Luke's gospel says he falls onto his knees to have this quiet communion with his father. Do you have a place of prayer in your life? You have a place or places that you can go to just simply be alone, not isolated, but in solitude with your loving father. Do you have a place of prayer that's a stone's throw or, or even just a, a toy throw away 
from all the activity in your life? A cell phone throw away. Do you have that place where you can withdraw to pray? Do you have, secondly, a, a posture of prayer? We see this in Jesus. He has a posture of prayer. Mark's gospel says that Jesus fell down. Luke tells us he knelt. Traditionally, the Jewish people would stand and they'd stand often with, with raised hands as they prayed. But here, Jesus, overwhelmed with sorrow and strain, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't run either to all the objects of isolation and, and, and that we often favor. He doesn't go to more drink or, or to sex or to busyness or all these other things that, that we favor when we are struggling. He doesn't even retreat into sleep like his disciples do. No, he brings all his anguish and he falls on his knees in a posture of surrender and submission to his father. Have you ever considered this? That sometimes one of the most effective ways to bring our hearts and our minds into the proper place before God is through assuming a posture of humility. And so as we do so, our body and our hearts and minds become aligned in submission to God in reverence towards God, aligned in purpose. I can remember doing this often as a child. How many of you did? Where you kneel down to pray, kneel down at, at the side of the bed. Can I confess, this is a habit I've long since lost. I pray often, but honestly, my prayer, like my feet is hurried, it's on the move, it's going somewhere else. And yet Jesus, he has this place of prayer. He has a posture of prayer. And as his closest friends look at him from a distance, though their eyes are growing heavy with sleep, they see the humility the visible humility and submission and sorrow of their Lord. A place, a posture. And lastly, Jesus prayed to a person. He cries out, Abba, Father. We don't have a word that translates just right for this. The word daddy is probably too diminutive. But what we see in this is it's personal, it's intimate, and it's reverent. It's like he's saying, Papa. Papa, this, this type of prayer, this would have been previously unheard of by the Jewish people. You can read in the Old Testament, God is sometimes, though rarely, referred to as father. And when he is, it is as the, the father of a nation, not like this, dad. And yet this is how Jesus consistently prays. And it's how he instructs us, his disciples, to pray, our father. Have you come to know Jesus like this? Have you come to know God, your father, like this? Your loving father? Let me tell you that, that my prayer life changed dramatically when, when God, by his grace, by his spirit, began to soften my heart to understand this, that he's my loving father, that when we pray to him, we are talking not to a, a force, but to a person, a person who is near to us, a person who cares about us, and a person who responds to us as our father. Yes, no, not yet, but full of wisdom and love and sometimes correction and discipline. Actually, for me, often. Do you know God is your loving father? Jesus did. Jesus did. And in fact, he said he could do nothing apart from the will of his father. And so in his self-emptied humanity, what he does is he goes to his father in prayer to discern the will of his father. I'm gonna say something that might strike you a little strange, but there is no power in prayer. Not in itself. There's power in a person. There's power in a person and that is the person to whom we pray. God, our Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, that is where the power lies. There are plenty of people who pray, but to what? Who do you pray to? Who do you pray to? In this, we see this conversation with Jesus's Father, and it, it's a conversation that, that we can, can take on ourselves and have the same kind of conversation with God. Are you overwhelmed? Are you struggling? Are you full of a sorrow and doubt? Jesus teaches us this kind of prayer. Dad, I'm struggling. 
Can you change this? But I trust you. Father, I'm struggling. I don't want to go through this, but I trust your will. All things are possible for me, Jesus prays. And then he says, remove this cup from me. What is this cup? What is this cup? Certainly Jesus knows what awaits him. He knows the physical suffering that he'll endure. He'll, he'll be broken. His body is going to be destroyed through this. And maybe it's take this cup of suffering. Take this, this broken body and shed blood. Is there any other way? What is this cup? What is this cup? We also see that, that this is a cup that Jesus alone is carrying. He must see and sense now his utter loneliness in the suffering that awaits. Even his closest friends, they can't stay awake to pray for him. Jesus, this, this social person, this lover of people, he is utterly alone. What is this cup? Beyond the, this, this social and the physical suffering that Jesus will go through, beyond this anguish, even more so, his question points us to the spiritual reality. What is he saying here? To understand this, we can look at the Old Testament. Psalm 60, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, and others in which the cup that is poured out is the cup of God's wrath. God's just judgment of sin, the cup of God's wrath. God in his perfection, in his holiness, he hates sin. Do you know that? He is long-suffering, he is kind, he is patient towards humanity, but he is also perfectly just and there is a penalty due for sin. Romans says that the wages of sin is what? It's death. And here Jesus in his final hours, beyond any fear of physical harm, beyond the, the overwhelming prospect of being isolated and alone in this and bearing this alone, what he is feeling is the overwhelming realization that he will suffer the full wrath of his father for the sake of sinners, for us. God's righteous wrath, it's throughout scripture. We don't like that terminology, but, but actually the wrath of God is mentioned more times in scripture than the love of God. This is yet consistent completely with the loving justice of God. This is rooted in the attributes of his, his holiness and perfection. God is so good. He is so holy. He is so perfect. And in the, the severity of that holiness, all sinful flesh cannot stand. We are undone in the presence of this kind of purity, holiness, and grandeur. And yet God holds back from destruction through his patience and kindness. He holds back, but not forever. Romans 2, 4 to 5 says it this way. It says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your heart and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There is a cup that is being filled, a cup of righteous judgment against sin, of justice against sin. But this is not just justice against sin. It is poured out on sinners. And Jesus knows. He knows that to satisfy the justice of God's wrath against sin, as he goes to the cross, as he gives himself, he will drink every last drop. I cannot imagine how crushing this weight must have been. I, I get overwhelmed almost daily by the silliest of things. I, I think probably most of us do. The simplest of stresses. And here alone in the garden, we see the vulnerability of our Lord as Jesus asks his father, one, two, and then a last time, is there any other way. I'm so grateful for a 
a Lord like this? A Christ like this, one whom with every reason to fear as demonstrated by this question, he looks upon the task that is yet to be done and though overwhelmed in spirit, he determines to agree with the will of his father. This is the only way. This is the only way, yet not what I will, but what you will. Your will be done. Jesus Christ agrees with the will of his father And in this, we see now the courage of our Savior. The courage of our Savior. Jesus, in his love toward us, he accepts his course. He prepares his heart to be forsaken by his Father and to bear the full weight of God's just wrath. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus agreed with the Father. Give no, uh, no uh, attention to these notions that God is, is somehow abusing his son. No, this is the united will of our God to do this for us. And this is so much more, this act of giving himself on the cross, so much more than an act of martyrdom. It's so much more than some, some demonstration of love for us. At the cross, the fullness of the justice of heaven meets the love of heaven in Christ. He substituted himself for us and in his humanity, utterly overwhelmed, he stands up from praying one more time and note this, he walks toward his betrayer. J.I. Packer, he says it so well. He says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, moved by a love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us, endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise inescapably destined and so won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. The band can come up right now. But as Jesus goes to the cross, he will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As for the first time, he suffers the anguish of a broken communion with his father. And and yet he says, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit And with a final cry of triumph, he shouts out from the cross, it is finished before letting out his final breath. And he dies like a child falling asleep in his father's arms. Because Jesus was fully man, he is a fitting substitute for us in our humanity. And because he is fully God, death could not hold him. Sin is broken in Christ. We'll celebrate that more in the coming weeks, but this is is the message here. Jesus has paid it all. He has paid it all. He has borne our sins. He has provided us a, a means of grace and in him, the wrath of God is completely satisfied. Do you know this? Have you received this in your own life? One of the ways we recognize whether we have or not is, is when the enemy comes and he starts accusing us, our adversary. Maybe you've experienced that, that condemnation, that accusation. You're nothing, you're worthless, you're unlovable, you are still dead in your sin and trespasses. What is our response to that? What is our response to that? Do we hold up our accolades, our accomplishments? No, I'm not. I'm better than other people. Look at this. Look at what I've done. Now, when we grasp the grace of God, when we grasp that he has paid it all, that he has has consumed every last drop of the wrath of God for those who believe in him, We can look upon that cross and though Satan should tempt us to despair and tell us of our guilt within upward, we look and see him there who made an end of all our sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, your sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him. And pardon me, that is our hope. That that is the courage of our Savior, who, who in all his frail humanity went willingly to the cross out of desperate love for you. Isaiah 53, it describes our our king, not as we might expect him, not triumphant, not glorious, not someone that we look upon and are impressed by. No, it describes a suffering servant. And it says this, this is written 700 years before the life of Jesus. And yet listen to who it describes. It says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus endured distress and death. He drank the cup of the wrath of God. That was the price that was due for our sin. But this is is the goodness of the gospel. He did so because he loves you and because it was worth it to him. He he counted it his glory to be accursed for us so that the curse of sin would no longer hold us captive. Have you received that grace? Have you believed in what he's done for you? God created you to be with him. Our sin, not not the sin of, of someone out there, our sin separates us from God and cannot be removed by our good deeds, but paying the price for sin, Jesus died and he rose again. He paid the price so that everyone who believes in him has eternal life with him now and forever. It is a free gift because of a great sacrifice. So if you've never received that, it's not complicated. You don't have to pray something elaborate. You don't have to do anything. Walk an aisle, you simply have to believe. Right where you sit, will you believe today in what he has done for you? If so, you are his for eternity. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, some some here this morning are suffering, struggling. Some are not here this morning because they are suffering and struggling. and, and, And Lord, I pray that right now you would draw near to us as our great high priest who is able to sympathize, empathize. You've been through it, Lord beyond what we could possibly understand. We thank you that you are a God who is not far off. And Lord, we thank you for your justice, that you don't allow this world to continue in sin and darkness. You have made a way of salvation for us. Oh, we thank you for the cross, for the consumption of every drop of wrath that was stored up for us in our sin. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we've been shown. And Lord, we pray, I pray today that you would help us as a church to walk in that grace 
no longer in the condemnation and brokenness of sin. Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us the strength of your spirit to live a life triumphant over this weak flesh as we live for your glory. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name.